Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's your host, Brandon Laws. This episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. And for a limited time now, you can sign up for the annual What People Want From Work survey. This is our sixth year doing this survey. It's a great opportunity for organizations, small, medium-sized organizations, nonprofits, for-profit, to ask their employees what they want out of their workplace. We tackle topics like company leadership, compensation, benefits and perks, workplace environment, diversity, equity, inclusion, and so much more. It's free to participate. Zenium does all the analysis. And at the end of it, we give you a nice report with all the details about what your people want to work. Learn more and sign up. The link is in the show notes. All right. I'm excited for today's episode. It's with Anthony Vaughn. What I loved about him and having him on the show is he was so candid and spoke from his heart. And I think that's all we can ask for in some of the guests that we have on here. Anthony is the co-founder of the E1B2 Collective. He's a podcast host himself and really enjoyed the conversation. We talked about his career, was very successful as a business leader, kind of lost all of it though, and struggled along the way. And I think he came to realize that people leadership is such a huge component to running a successful organization. So he shifted his career to that of people leadership and HR, and just has a completely different perspective. And you're going to hear about his transformation and why he focuses so much on retention as part of business success. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places. I would love to hear from you. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. We've got a great episode coming next week with Adrian Gostick. He's the author of Anxiety at Work and so many other books, but he is a returning guest and you're going to love that one too. So make sure to hit that subscribe button so you get that episode when it comes out next week. Take care. Anthony, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. How are you? I am so good. We've been kind of circling for a while, and I'm glad we could finally do this podcast and, and connect. You've got your own podcast, too, so we're in the same space as far as HR podcasting. So let's start with how did you get to where you are? I know a little bit about your background. You were a business leader, a business owner, running a, a seven-figure business, and now you're an HR professional. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, it's kind of come full circle because I'm a, you know, I'm an entrepreneur again now, uh, which is interesting too. But, but yeah, so you know, long story. Well, well, actually, let me back up here. Let's let's yeah. give a shout out. I think the both of us should give a shout out to Galen Emanuel for for the yeah, you know, <laughs> love Galen. Uh, that that's how this all actually happened. So thank you. He's a you know, he's a dear friend. I've, I've collaborated with his brand a couple of different times. And um, so he's a, he's a good guy. So, so thanks. Yes, a lot. he is. Yeah. So I started a, a company very early in my career. So I spent some time at a D3 university called Wesley uh, my freshman year, did a transfer over to West Virginia to play football. And also, frankly, to just be with a girl at the time, honestly. And uh, <laughs> it was a good party school if you got have heard of it. <laughs> Long story short, man, uh, personal circumstance happened. 
came home and I'll speed the story up this way. 18 months later, I was looking at a, uh, like you said, a seven figure brand, 60 full time folks, another 25 in collaborators Incredible. and, and uh, subcontractors. And the biggest thing that was kind of neat is partnership with the Under Armour. They really allowed us to do a lot of great things and, and have a lot of great exposure. And so inevitably, long story short, um, I was running a company at 19, 20 years old. That's so young. Yeah. I mean, that's to be running a business of that size at 19, 20 years old. I mean, that's, that's incredible. You have no business doing so either. Um, as you probably know <laughs> at 19, I was a child, I think at least mentally, <laughs> you, you know, what's funny. Uh, I was a child as well. <laughs> so, so, um, but long story short, uh, that's what happened. And I was able to slowly but surely chip away at a lot of really thoughtful partnerships, build that brand, scale that brand. And then I guess I can pause there because I made a really big mistake, but I'll do a little cliffhanger knowing the podcasting game. I'll do a little cliffhanger and allow you to maybe ask some other questions. But essentially, again, 19 till about 21 was that beginning career of being a business owner and a leader and working with Under Armour and a lot of great um, athletes at the time. Yeah. So during that time, that that two-year span where you've essentially grown this organization what struggles came or because you're not doing it anymore. So what struggles did you have during that two year span that was sort of a gut check to you in your early career? <laughs> so I'll throw out a couple buzzwords. Um, I didn't know what an IDP was, um, you know, individual development plans. I wasn't aware of the word called leadership. Um, I wasn't aware of the words, uh, the word called career mapping and, and how to go about that. And so let's stick on those three things here. I had a great guy who uh, is doing a lot of great work with the NFL now and still actually collaborates with, with Under Armour. Um, he was a budding uh, sports and agility coach. So, there, you know, in the in the football space, there's a lot of agility coaches that help you work on your footwork and other things. And long, long, long story short, I sought him out and I said, look, I want you to be a partner in this brand. Now, when I used the word partner at the time, I looked at the word partner a lot different than what he thought inevitably did not give him equity, but I, I wanted to start this off with him. Mm. And I knew through him, I could get to Under Armour and I could get to a large quantity of athletes. And yeah. long story short, brought him into the fold. We made a lot of money together, did a lot of great work together. And I apologize if you guys heard my cat here in the background. Um, That's okay. I, I got a couple cats roaming around too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, long story short, the mistake that I made connecting it to current mapping, IDP, all those right things. He sat me down one afternoon and said, look, man, uh, my mom's giving me a lot of crap here. Because um, we were all young. You know, he was 21, 22 at the time as well. So he was saying, look, she is seeing us do a lot of great work, but she's been asking a really clear question. Where's this all going? She knows this is something, but how is this connected to my long-term career aspirations? What inevitably, you know, am I going to be doing? And I didn't have a great answer for it. And frankly, I ignored the conversations. I ignored the meetings. He tried to do about four. And long, long, long story short, he uh, sent me an email about two and a half weeks later after trying to get my attention for six straight weeks and said, uh, I'm going to move on from this company. And he took Under Armour with him. Yeah, your biggest client. Okay. Yep, yep. Took Under Armour. He took 99.9% of every single athlete that was associated with the brand and he opened up shop and uh, took a lot of my other executives and coaches that were involved as well. And so it, it taught me a very clear lesson, very young in age, that really all he wanted, Brandon, was a career mapping conversation, a thoughtful one-on-one, an individual development plan, if you will, of what he could do to continue to grow and, and to prosper within this organization, contextual to his overall skill set. 
And he wanted to know where the hell he was going. And I was not privy to that, being a kid myself. And that ended the business uh, shortly thereafter. When you started that business and, and really started getting into it, obviously you got a glimpse of what your weaknesses were as a, as a business leader. And it seems like the people development side, but what strengths did you have that led you to where you were at the time? Grit, I think. Mm. I come from West Baltimore, really humble beginnings. Um, I'm not supposed to be here. You know, I have a lot of friends, unfortunately, not to bring any darkness to this podcast, but have passed away addicted to drugs. Parents to this day are not doing too well financially, though they, they try their hardest. Yeah, the alternative looks like, you know, a bartender at a, at a local bar. Though I will say, because my mom tells me this, there's nothing wrong with being a bar- bartender. Please let me be on the record there because I, I don't want to get any hate. <laughs> but for me, I wanted to do a little bit more is what I'm saying. And so I think what enabled me to do that is grit, right? You know, my options not running a company were not like that great. So I figured why not? That was associated with grit. I think um, partnership design was another skill that I had that actually led me to my second business. I ran a partnership consultancy firm for a couple of years after that company. I think partnership design for early stage startups and late stage startups, which I was, is, is really interesting. Uh, I learned that pretty quickly for some reason. I think the ability to galvanize relationships really quickly and put teams together without giving them a dollar up front and getting them excited about the vision. Yeah, it sounds like inf- influencing people is a yep. strength of yours. Exactly. That's actually a great way to just sum it up. So, yeah, those are skills that I, I cultivated over time and that pretty it came pretty naturally. Yeah, so it sounds like you're, I mean, true entrepreneur. But when your key employee left and really all you wanted was career mapping, was that the moment you realized, like, I need to figure out how to be a people leader or did it come years later as you maybe dove into some of the subject matter? No, that was the literal moment. Um, the literal moment, I'll tell you exactly, exactly to the T of what happened. That day occurred. I left the office. I had a meeting with my COO at the time, Tim. He looked at me and said, because he was a much older, he said, you got two choices, kid. You can pick up the pieces and try to rebuild this, or you can go start something new and dedicate the next few years to learning and growing, because I think you made a couple of mistakes here. And he said, frankly, that I wish I would have guided you away from making those mistakes as I made those mistakes early in my career as well. So he took a little accountability as well. And I decided to go with the latter. I decided to go with research study. So I took a trip to New York, took my now fiance out uh, to New York to just have some downtime. And when I came back, I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life studying every single day to understand the mistakes that I made and career mapping, IDP. And strategic employees. One of those were like some of the first things that popped up as I was Google searching, <laughs> trying to figure out the mistakes that I made. Um, yeah. And I just started going down the rabbit hole of studying every day to never make those mistakes again. Were there any sort of formal education or certifications that you went through? And what areas did you really start researching and, and studying? No formal. Okay. Um, I suffer from severe ADD, so I was never the oh, greatest. Sitting in class. Oh, I'm like, could you imagine like nowadays oh, people are sitting on a computer doing virtual work? Like I, I could not do that. It's the worst thing. You know, you know, it's funny. My fiance, she just stopped. But the last three years, she's been a teacher. So I've got to see it firsthand, kind of the, the trials and tribulations with that. So no, nothing formal. Again, I studied. And when I say literal three hours a day, Brandon, I, I really mean that. I, I replaced my athletic background of like, 
exercise and training for three hours a day. And I plugged research in. So I'm talking Mm -hmm. white papers, case studies, mentors, thought leaders. Um, I built out a really deep network around me and said, talk to me for an hour a week. And I had like six folks. So I was doing six hours of calls. Again, things that I was looking into, career mapping, executive coaching. Then I got into EQ pretty hard. Then I got down the rabbit hole of neuroscience with like Christine Comerford and David Rock and Keith Ferrazzi. Then I jumped over and actually uh, stumbled upon Gary V very early, early. Yeah, love Gary V. You know, about maybe seven years ago. And he was talking about people and strategy and how that could really impact the org and then got into, you know, organizational psychology and all of that good stuff with Adam Grant. And so I started going down these rabbit holes and inevitably, um, and I'm sure you're going to ask this, but inevitably I, uh, in the midst of me still running my second business, I was doing that under, you know, behind the scenes, kind of like night school, if you will. And I did that for five years straight. And I picked my head up and I said, I want to jump into an organization and learn how to do this tactically and not just be a researcher and a thought leader around it. I want to actually know how to do it. And I had a big tab in my Google Docs. It was called E1B2, Employees First, Business Second, because that's what I summed up my mistake being. And I'll leave it there, but pretty much I decided to go into a couple companies and pitch my services. So were you consulting with those organizations or were you going in as an employee? I tried to be ahead of people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you tried. Did you succeed? I succeeded. Yeah. Excellent. 99.9% of the company said, are you crazy kid? What do you think? You don't have any right. HR in your background. Well, it's it's interesting you say that because when I've talked to several people on my podcast, as I'm sure you have, business owners, C-level executives, they are looking for people officers, chief people officers, CHROs that have a level of business experience and maybe some HR, but people leadership skills. So it's like that, that perfect combo. And I don't know if a lifelong HR practitioner is going to really fit that role unless they learn the business side. Is that your experience as well? That that was my experience, right? Because what I did is I had, the reason why I got their attention is I said, look, you know, I've uh, I built a seven figure and a six figure brand before 26. And so that popped their head up, right? Because I knew sales and marketing and partnerships. So I knew to say something really impactful to get their attention. And so they were like, okay, that's interesting. Let's talk. I understand business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. First, right? And then I told them about the mistake that I made. And then I said, I've dedicated, you know, the last, you know, five years of research to uh, getting better at these things. And I showed them all the documents and the tools and the best practices and all the information that I had. And so uh, a couple companies gave me a shot, one in a uh, strategic advising capacity, kind of like a fractional model, and then the other in a full scope of being ahead of people. And I said to them, here's the big thing, Brandon, I said, I don't know anything traditional in the HR world. So you need to have a generalist and you need to have a recruiter in-house. Beautiful. I want to have ownership of all things, you know, executives, managers, people. And I want to be at the strategic seat from day one. And I want to galvanize what should be happening on behalf of our people and putting their perspectives in the data of their of their perspectives first to guide our strategy. That is beautiful. And I'll be honest with you, I was just regurgitating everything I researched, but uh, <laughs> but I wanted to get in there and actually try it, and they gave me a shot. Yeah. Know? I want to go back to the research part because you said something that um, we were talking about the fact they have ADD and you didn't really want to sit through formal education. I imagine people listening 
have a similar feeling. I know I resonate with that. I like, I don't want to go back and get my MBA because I just can't sit through class. I don't want to do night school, whatever it may be. There's a lot of great resources out there, whether it's even certifications or just online education or books. I mean, if you were talking to yourself at that age, when you started going through this path, or even somebody you can mentor nowadays, what would you tell people like the best resources, books to pick up, anything that that you could share with listeners would be amazing? I would literally type in like if you're someone that's like, again, we'll go with some of the themes we've been talking about. If you're if you're interested in individual development plans and the frameworks, if you're interested in internal comms, if you're interested in employer branding, if you're interested in people analytics, I would literally type in those in Google. And then next to that, I would type in case study or I would type in white paper. Because those are the types of things that you actually want to read, or I would type in framework. And that's what I did. I just did that. And then it showed me really deep tactical structures and processes that I inevitably just took, copied and pasted, and literally just started dreaming up and coming up with my own variations of what I would do differently, how I would approach it, looking at what they did. Because I think blogs are too high level. Yeah, they, they, it's like bullet points and subheaders and right. it's not enough. But if you have a framework, you can actually take that and make it your own and actually implement it in an organization. Exactly. That's what I would do. And then okay. and then there are some great certifications and some programs. Obviously, we all know about SHRM and we know about some other yeah. great organizations here. And um, I think those are valuable if, that, if you learn best in that type of a structure. But for me, I wanted to just chip away at case studies, white papers. And then also, obviously, I did a really good job of building out a network around me where I had a lot of great people uh, that would sit with me for 60 minutes, 90 minutes, once a month, once a week to just talk to me about all the things they were doing actively um, give me access to be uh, a fly on the wall. Like quite literally, like just, I'm not even here. I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to watch you interact with your executives, with your employees. Um, I'm going to watch you conduct strategy and come up with something from scratch, literally like them on like their own like computer. And I'm just kind of there in the background watching them figure things out and talk to themselves and plan things out and have meetings. I just sat there and just listened. So that's what I would recommend. You were talking just a bit ago about the structure when you were head of people. So you were, I think you said you were working with the leaders and the executives and I imagine for coaching and development, career mapping, all those things. But then you said underneath you, you had to have a generalist and uh, somebody else. I'm curious about just the structure and how you distributed the, the people side of the work. Yeah. How did you, what resources did you have? What areas did you touch and did not touch? I really want to know from your perspective as a head of people, like what you are doing and what your the people under you are doing. So I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, if we had to conduct recruiting, right? That's a pretty typical HR responsibility. The tactical, you know, sourcing, going out, the interviews themselves, like figuring out what the job description actually, like writing the actual job description, really tactical generalist type roles and responsibilities, I did not touch it ever. But what I did, though, is I did oversee those things to make sure that they were equitable, make sure they were fair, make sure they were contextual, make sure the job description was was designed in such a way that would really give us the best shot of describing exactly what we are trying to create. Uh, got into employer branding and really looked at the messaging and the structure and the copy and the the, the feel. You know, I would create a process 
connected to recruiting where once we would bring someone into the fold, so now they're an employee, I would I would be the one conducting those 90-day interviews with the employees and really ask really poignant, interesting questions to really unpack the good, the bad, the ugly, and put them in a spot where they can kind of control the narrative, take that data, bring it back to the hiring managers, bring it back to the other managers and say, here's what we need to do better in the job description. Here's what we could have done better in interview two. Here's what we could do better in interview three. Here's what where they were still a little bit confused and, and puzzled. I was very much of a strategist, right? And then even again, on the compliance side and the policy side, I would then again, never really design to build any of those things. I just opened up the hood, if you will, conducted audits, went to my employees first and say, walk me through some of the policies that are still really confusing to you. Walk me through some of the structures and the systems and the and the workflows that we have that put you in a moment where it makes you not as productive. What can we change? What can we do? What do you need more from your leaders? And then I'll go to the leaders and say, and this is actually really important, Brandon. I had actual decision-making bandwidth, meaning there were like bullet points that the leaders in the company, every executive outside the CEO like I would rate them. I would support them around making sure they were being, again, super empathetic, super supportive, uh, being contextual with their communication style to the preferences of the employees, you know, being able to like audit and adjust workflows. And if they were not able to be empathetic and super tactical in those moments with their direct reports, I had the ability to fire them quite literally. I would train them. I would train them. I would support them. I would support them. I would love them. And then at any given point, I would say, look, Our employees are not experiencing this side of management well, and here are the reasons why we've done X, Y, and Z to support. What else do I need to support you with? Or maybe this is not the right fit. And I don't think that is a structure that most heads of people have. And I want to see more of that because we have the best skill sets in the org to figure out what's best for the the people in the company. So I don't know if that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Very. What's one of the biggest successes you've had in that chief people officer role? Um, I created a graduation model. So what I was able to do, since I have a business background, I was able to sit with Kevin and Nia. Kevin was the CEO. Nia was the COO. Um, Nia was really my right-hand man. Me and Nia worked together pretty consistently. We realized, long story short, let me try to sum it up, that most of our employees, about 78%, 80%, had a desire to only be at our company for like, 12 to 18 months. We were like a stepping stone to another area. Weird. How did you determine that? Uh, Did you just ask them? Conversations. Yeah, conversations. Okay. And then also like looking at the data and just seeing people leave. (laughs) Um, That also like it speaks to your culture though. If people are open about like, yeah, I'm going to be here for 12 to 18 months and then I'm going to leave. So it's like you can help them graduate. Maybe that's where the graduation, I'll let you decide. No, 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 you're good. No, those are the right things you're saying. So really where I first started is like, I just kept noticing it. And so I was like, wait, let me go talk to some of the people that walked away. Like, actually tell me like, where are you going? <laughs> and they're like, well, we're going to work in this medical space. We're working, we're going to work at this job. And I'm like, well, why are you doing that? They're like, because you guys don't have those roles available. And so I was like, okay, hold on, stop there. That's interesting. And so I went to Kevin, I went to Nye. I said, do we need, and I did an audit of the org. I said, I did all of the org. I said, do we need any of those roles? And objectively, interesting enough, we found out contextual to our goals in the next two to three years, we actually did not need those roles that were out there in the market. We just didn't need them. We didn't need that capacity at the time. We were also shifting into a nonprofit brand. 
So then our margins were zero. Hmm. So our margins were razor thin as well. So folks were leaving for two reasons. Folks were leaving because are the highest paid person outside of the managers and the executives were $18 an hour. So we then realized that the majority of our, our staff were in their late 20s heading into their 30s. So now we're realizing, oh, these folks are getting married, trying to have kids, trying to go to the next level in their career. They cannot survive off of 18. But Brandon, we don't even have the cash, even if we wanted to, to put them in a position to make more than 18. And we don't need any, there are no needs at the manager and executive levels to even shift them into a different area. Hmm. So I was like, at a pure business level, we're stuck here. And they were like, well, what do we do? And I said, well, why don't we create a, a, a graduation model? They're like, what is that? I said, why don't we make partnerships with the next tier of companies that are similar to us? Interesting. Yeah, we did like a learning and development program where I said, look, we'll give them exposure. We'll give them shadowing opportunities. We'll give them X, Y, and Z. And we will graduate them to those companies. But it will need a, an agreement that they'll be here with us for 18 months, 12 months, whatever the case is. So we would be able to predict that. So we would do our recruiting. We would be able to predict and keep things on schedule and keep things on track. The engagement, Brandon, the engagement of those folks, once they knew they were graduating to a next level, once they knew they had shadowing opportunities, once they knew that we were going to really support them contextually to their aspirations long term and we cared about them, it went through the roof. Innovation spiked. Anything you can think of spiked. All the metrics that we all know and love spiked. And then also natural inbound of recruiting and employer branding spiked because now people were starting to find out that, hey, this company will actually help you get to another level. So maybe you should come here. So we were getting higher levels of talent that wanted to get to those next levels because we had a pipeline. Yeah. People to this day still reach out to me and say, thank you for doing that. So that's an example. That's, yeah, that's beautiful. At least you owned exactly uh, who you were as an employer. And it's like, okay, there's like, <laughs> there's like a limited amount of time. Most employers are going to stay here unless they could actually get to the leadership or executive level, which didn't sound like there's a ton of opportunities. So at least you built a program to get people in and train them up and then, have them continue their career elsewhere that was a good fit for them. So it's, it's beautiful. Exactly. I appreciate that. You know, after that point, where'd your career grow? Like, what are you up to now? Yeah. So I was furloughed. <laughs> uh, if this was like beginning of pandemic yeah, or yeah. earlier Be- than that. The beginning of the pandemic. Yep. yep. And so, um, as you probably can imagine, I'm not good at waiting around. I'm not good at hanging out. I'm not good at chilling. I'm not good at uh, doing any of those things. And so what I decided to do is um, I decided to start the E1B2 Collective. It was a holding company that inevitably created, uh, and we do create, lots of different brands, services, and executions in, in the world of work. And where the E1B2, where did that come from? Was that, that that early moment in your career where you're like, oh, I was putting business first, not employees first, and now it's flip-flopped for you? Exactly, exactly. I think, you know, well, the E1B2 really came from putting employees first, um, I think for us, what we care most about is really utilizing employee data, really utilizing their perspectives, their nuances, what makes them them, and putting those things first to guide any business executions that we want to put in place. Yeah, that was the thinking and that was the thought. And then I I was inspired to create a holding company, kind of again by Gary Vee. I'm a big fan. I like what he's doing. With yeah. Gary, uh, Gosh, he's got so many brands. Exactly. So smart. And, and that was the thinking. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk about the, just the current state of being an employer, especially amid the pandemic and a lot of employers are going back to work. But before I do that, can you share like your website or any other places that people should go check out what you're up to now? 
A hundred percent. I think the easiest space to uh, check me out and, and to hear about what I'm working on is going to be uh, my LinkedIn. I think if you just, you know, search Anthony Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. I think that, you know, the website is the E1B2Collective.com. Um, there's a lot of good stuff. I think if you just Google Anthony Vaughn and then put HR behind it, there's going to be a lot of great information there. I'll put links to those profiles in the show notes. So if you're listening or just go back to the show notes and and you can click on, uh, Anthony's profiles from there. Uh, so it's been a weird time uh, the last year and a half or, or more for some organizations. I mean, you're so close to the employees and the needs of employees. Where where do you think they're at right now? What do they need from their employer more than ever right now? Um, I think they need a couple things. I think they, number one, need their employees to operationalize flexibility yeah. and empathy. I'll be very candid with you, Brandon. I think a lot of employers have faked the funk a little bit. I think a lot of the DE&I movements we were seeing, a lot of the flexibility and hybrid of work that we were seeing, we're starting to notice that going away with the world opening up here. Right. I, I get that. I'm with you. I totally see it. Yeah, man. And, and I think I think what employees are looking for and what employees want is they need their employers to truly operationalize what they're saying. If you're saying that DE&I matters, if you're saying that uh, hybrid work matters, then build that into the, you know, the literal fabrics of the organization and keep them in here forever, forever, and don't let, allow them to to go up and down based off of the political landscape yep. or the health landscape that's happening. You know, keep it in there because obviously it's important to folks. You know, Anthony, what's coming to mind for me uh, is this quote: "It's something like don't let a good crisis go to waste." I feel like a lot of people are not taking what they've learned through the challenges and adversity that this pandemic has given us in our organizations with our people just all the challenges that came with it. We did, did we learn from it? Are we just trying to go back to business as usual? Because I don't think business as usual would be smart move right now. I don't think so either. And no, I don't think we've learned from it. I think human yeah. beings are stubborn. I think human beings have significant amounts of ego. And I think um, I think the, the human beings that are leading organizations need to check themselves. If I'm being frank with you and, and not to, you know, not to do a shout out to anything that I'm working on, but I think they genuinely need to put employees first. The literal meaning of the E1B2, E1B2 is not E1. It's not employees first, employees are right forever. It's B2 as well. Business. Put their thoughts, put their perspectives, put the data you collect around them, put how they think about the operational fabrics of the organization first and allow that information to guide what they decide to do. And uh, I just don't think a lot of organizations are doing that. A lot of organizations are making a decision that only behooves their perspectives, a.k.a. the executives' perspectives, and then they're putting it in place and they're updating the employees rather than co-creating. So besides that, what would you say employers are getting wrong about people leadership in general? Uh, what are they getting wrong besides that? Uh, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> I think, let me let me do this. I think um, I have a brand called Beyond Brands. So I'll, I'll, I'll do a synergy with that. I think a lot of employers are horrible at explaining operational realities of a company early in the process. I believe that's true. What I mean by that is, and I'll keep it very simple in layman's terms, I believe when you are running a company and when you are trying to bring a new applicant into the org, I believe it is incredibly important for you to talk about the operational fabrics and realities of the org 
seconds after they apply. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense because you want that onboarding experience or that even when they're interviewing and you're telling them how great your culture is or anything about the business that it matches the reality later on when they actually get in the weeds of doing their job. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I think what employers and leaders are doing wrong is they're faking the funk. They're getting too excited about bringing in the employee because typically, you know, this getting into the recruiting world. We typically we start the hiring process a little too late. We're rushing around. We needed that role to be filled yesterday. And uh, so they're just trying to like expedite as much as they can instead of being super thoughtful and patient. Well, Anthony, I mean, this has been such a good conversation. I think we're going to have to do another one because there's probably so much more we could talk about. Um, Anything that you just want to say in parting uh, to the listeners to uh, about anything, really? Last word for you. Uh, Just put employees first. Really understand what that means. Utilize the data. Really take that data, their perspectives around even nitty gritty things like how they how they're experiencing the workflow, how they're experiencing recruiting, how they're experiencing the employer brand, how they're experiencing managers and, and, and their overall personalities and leadership styles and take their data and really bake it into the future operations and, and fabrics of the org. Don't just think a survey or a one-off training or a one-off conversation is going to do the trick. I think really, really opening up the hood and making changes for the long term is uh, the, the ideal way to go. My guest has been Anthony Vaughn. Anthony, it's been such a pleasure having you on. Thanks, sir. I'm glad we did this. A lot of fun. I appreciate it, Brandon. Thanks a lot.